Hello, and welcome to the Meeple in a Game Stack podcast, a podcast all about board games, whether it's getting into them, getting the most out of them, or just having a good time. This is podcast number 46, and as always, I'm your host, Mitch Brown. And on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about the new earth-defending, alien-destroying, under-falling skies. But first, we're going to be answering a community question, and then talking a bit about what we've been playing recently. And I guess firstly, to address, we are back to the spaced-out release schedule that we had previous to Eric Lang Month, where we will be releasing an episode every two weeks instead of every week. Hello, Mitch from the future here. Just re-recording this bit because I said it a little awkwardly the first time, but this first announcement is more of a personal one. In the last little week in between the two episodes here, the lovely Caitlin, who's been on the podcast a couple times, and I got married. We used the time to go on what honeymoon we could. We had a wonderful week, and we couldn't be happier. And now, back to present Mitch to resume the podcast you were listening to. Enjoy. So, uh, announcements out of the way, we'll jump into the community question. This question comes from Chris, and he asks, How much does the physical quality of a board game affect your opinion slash enjoyment of the game itself? And this is a good question, but I think for myself an easy one to answer. I think... The tactility and physical presence of a game, both visually and as a tactile experience, as in something you touch and play with and move and manipulate, is hugely important to the experience of actually playing that game. I mean, that's one of the two parts that make board games have such an advantage over video games. Their game systems, yeah, that's all the same. Point systems, designs, and ways of interacting. But the two huge advantages is that, first off, you're in person for a board game, so sitting around in that social aspect is huge. But also, there's a serious import to the experience that's brought on by physical things that you're manipulating on a board in front of you, or on a table in front of you. These are tactile experiences, and part of that, I think really changes how you think about a game. It, I find, I think it helps with memory when they, you've moved a physical token, helps you remember it better, as well as it's just a pleasing part. It tickles that, I mean, monkey part of your brain that just likes the shiny click-clack rocks that are dice, or the kind of weighty satisfaction of moving around heavy poker chip-like tokens, or lining your board up perfectly, neatly in a row. All of these are kind of sensations that, through this physicality, board games have the opportunity to capitalize on. And to ignore that part of your board game, I think, would be foolish. In the extreme, it's part of why part of why I don't really like print-and-play games or digital implementations of board games. I find it can make or break the experience of playing a game. Deck builders are not very fun when you just click a button and it shuffles your deck for you. Part of that moving cards, the satisfaction of the change in how your deck feels to shuffle throughout the game. If you play Dominion, if you play Clank, as you slowly acquire, they get bigger and bigger and usually start too small to be able to shuffle very satisfyingly. And even that, even that little touch helps it be more satisfying when you do add cards to your deck, when you start to build up your strategy, when you get your engine going. The physical presence of board games is hugely important. 
Of course, it's not everything. You can still have a bad game that has really nice components to it. The design is ultimately, I mean, what you're going to be doing, but how you do it and how it feels to do that is the tactility and the physical presence of board games. And I think that is hugely important. So yeah, I think that's really important, and I know certainly it will help my opinion of a game if it has satisfying components that are so enjoyable to touch and manipulate and use to play a game. And I think this question becomes all the easier to answer when you look at how many games in board games have deluxe versions. Usually, and a deluxe version, usually there's not all that much more content. That's often sold as expansions or anything, but deluxe versions usually just have more satisfying tactile components to them. They're upgraded chips instead of cardboard tokens or miniatures instead of standees. This kind of physical stuff is why people buy those and go for those. And because it's so satisfying, it's a huge part of the industry now. So I certainly don't think that it's only me who has this opinion, but yes, the physical implementation of a game does matter. It can influence how good a game is. A game with a good enough design can be buoyed by the strength of its components, if they're particularly satisfying, as well as a really good design can be dragged down by mediocre components or flimsy cards or misaligned artwork. All of these things matter, and matter quite a bit. So I hope that answers your question, Chris. Next, moving on, we're going to be talking a bit about what we've been playing recently. And for what we've played recently, we've played a really old game and a really new game in the last couple of weeks. The first one, the new one, is a vitamin-rich and colorful box that is Juicy Fruits, designed by Christian Stoer, which could possibly be Stoer? <laughs> so sorry, Mr. Christian. And published by Capstone Games. So what Juicy Fruits is, is the premise is you are harvesting fruit to be made into juice to fund your little island and kind of, <laughs> and kind of juice its growth. Um, how you'll do this is through manipulating these little baskets on your home island. Your home island starts choked up with a bunch of boats all wanting to buy fruit from you, so the play space is very small at the beginning. Restricting the area that you have to slide these baskets across the grid that is kind of your island. As you slide any of these baskets, depending on what type it is, is and how many spaces it can move, moving only in a straight line and stopping when it hits something, is how many fruit you get. If you move the banana basket two spaces across, you get two bananas. Then, the second part of your turn, you can choose to spend those bananas. Maybe it's to pay these boats that are kind of loitering on your island, clogging up the works, and once you've kind of paid them with the bananas, you get the points, and they leave, opening up another space on your board. Or, the second option that you have is to spend your bananas at kind of this, or other fruits, not specifically bananas, at a shared market with the rest of the players. In the shared market are a few more fancy things. You have stalls, you have extra baskets which pick up multiple types of fruit or extra fruit. You have very stalls and buildings that can do some effects. Generally the buildings just kind of sit there and you get points for buying them, but they start to clog up your island again as you place them on your board and there's no way to move them from where they're placed. 
There's also stalls, which can give you bonuses. Maybe it's for having a lot of stars. Maybe it's for clearing all the beaches on your islands, you know, getting rid of all those boats. There are ice cream carts, which are kind of a hybrid between baskets and stalls in that you move them like a basket on your island, but you actually buy things when you do, and you can buy an ice cream for every space you move. You pay a certain amount of fruit to do so, which it just dawns on me that maybe this is more frozen yogurt than ice cream. I mean, I guess you can make ice cream with fresh fruit, but isn't it... Is it a sorbet? Regardless, <laughs> you get your frozen fruit treats for paying the certain cost each time you buy them. You get points for it and move up the little score track. But the thing is, every time you buy one of these things, whether it's a stall or a building or an extra basket, there basically is a little license timer that ticks down as everybody buys stuff. So as people buy things, the game gets closer to being over because once the tracker ticks all the way to zero, the game is over and that's how to end the game. And that's kind of Juicy Fruits. It's not a terribly complicated premise. There is a solo mode, and as well as a more complicated variant where you can make juice and move along kind of a juice track collecting bonuses. But it's not that complicated. First off, I gotta say, the art in this is really lovely. It's, it's such a like visually pleasing game. It's got this nice tropicalness to it. All the fruit looks <laughs> delicious and it's got a weirdly like relaxing quality to it. The gameplay is fairly simple and is good for families. I actually taught my, <laughs> I mean, speaking of getting married, I literally the day I played this on my wedding day, <laughs> which I never really thought about, but it was the morning before the ceremony where uh, I wasn't seeing the bride, and I was just spending it with my family, so we played a board game, and <laughs> so yeah, I played, I even played board games for the podcast on my wedding day. <laughs> but it is family approved, because my family picked it up and ran with it. And the gameplay, this kind of clearing your island, is very pleasing, the art's very pleasing. It's kind of just very pleasing overall as a game, and it was a nice kind of relaxing game in the morning. <laughs> Nothing too cutthroat I was already nervous enough <laughs> but I've found it to be it's like it's good it's not great I've found it personally to be a little more I don't know a little insubstantial this juice is a little watery for me I guess I just kind of wish there was a little extra to it as it is it's fairly simple to just move your basket which is pleasing to do and clearing up your island is pleasing and Getting various things to try to get points at the end is kind of more of a puzzle, but it doesn't really have too much of a puzzle throughout. It is quite light, and yeah, it's just in a way that makes it feel a little... Yeah, I guess insubstantial is just kind of the word there. I could have used, I guess, a little more pulp in my, in my juice game. So yeah, it's good, it's worth checking out, but it's not, not truly amazing, I guess. And certainly didn't blow me away. And now moving on to the second game that we played recently. Uh, the old one, this one actually was a wedding gift from some friends, and this is The Game of Life, designed, I'm fairly certain, by Ruber Klamer and Bill Markham. So yeah, this game was a wedding gift from a couple of friends who, of course, we were starting a life together, so hence The Game of Life, and knew I loved board games, so got me this. And I thought it would be a really interesting kind of case study. I haven't, I played the game of life a lot when I was a kid. It was at my grandma's house and whenever we went there, we would often play a game, but I haven't really returned to it in my adult life or since I've been really getting into board games. So it was kind of an interesting thing to return to. And I have looked it up. The version that my grandma had was the 1981 version, <laughs> if you're curious. 
uh, versus this is very modern, so it's interesting to see how it's changed. I don't really know if I need to describe what the game of life is. It's a, I guess, not a roll and move, but a spin and move. You spin a dial, you move along the track, various life events happen to you, including you can get married. In this new one, you can get pets. You get a job that gives you a certain amount. You cross paydays and they give you more money. You just turn over events and see if you win or lose money. And the person with the most money at the end of the game wins the game. Ooh, which I never really thought of, but having the point of the game of life be to acquire the most money by the end is ugh, kind of an icky message that I just occurred to me. Uh, but that aside, there are, between the new ones and this kind of, or between the old game and this new one, there are actually a couple new additions that I wasn't, I was surprised by that were actually good. In the old one, you got a profession and just every time you passed a payday, you get paid. Versus in this new one... Your job actually gives you a certain number, or your career, and whenever a player spins that, they have to give you money, which gives a little bit of interactivity to it, makes it a little more worth being invested in and keeping players' attention as everyone else does their turn, because there's very, very little player interaction in this. I mean, that's basically it. Apart from some th events or cards that will ask you to spin and whoever gets the highest gets a thing. Another interesting addition is that instead of on the spaces on the board being printed what happens to you, you now draw from a deck of event cards. This increases replayability, I guess, but to me it was something that was kind of lost because now the board is much smaller and you don't have specific spaces in certain things, which means generally in the old game they would kind of put more old age type things at the end of the game and newer things at the beginning versus now it's just mixed so they're anywhere and anything can happen at any time. One thing that occurred to me with this, and why I mentioned I had the 1981 version, is I was actually shocked with how much the production quality has gone down. This new game has new art, of course it's very kid-friendly and cartoonish, but the actual quality of the board is terrible. It is now small. You don't have to have anything written on it, so they made it much, much smaller, but it's also very flimsy. The actual spinner is a plastic piece that you just kind of slide over a corner, and since you're, you know, interacting with that every turn, it being kind of flimsy and flimsily attached to the board is not very sweet. The old version, it was a big plastic chunky thing, but it was also built into the big heavy board. Well, not heavy, but the heavier board. So actually spinning it was a little better, versus this flimsy one, you kind of have to, like, use a hand to hold it and then spin the spinner, which was... You know, point of friction that you do every turn, every turn of this game. As well as there's, like, less components. There's less denominations of money. There's less of it. There's not a little betting kind of board thing that you had in the old version. Even the cars and the pegs are... I mean, like, <laughs> in the world where I'm sure plastic has gotten... Well, I mean, plastic has and molding and that technology has gotten way better since the 1980s. The... Actual pegs and cars were kind of worse, which is not great. Yeah, so I was actually really just shocked and why I looked up specifically what version I had to see how it compared in just how low the production quality of this is, which, I mean, I don't know what I was expecting, but still, I guess I was just expecting the same as the old one. It has gone down significantly, so if you have the chance to get a battered old copy of the 1981 version, you go for it. Overall, compared to modern games, this is... this was very interesting. Of course, there's the stigma around old games or non-kind-of-hobbyist games, so I tried to remove that and look at this objectively. 
even objectively, it's an experience more than it is a game. You roll, and that's just a random number. You then read an event that you have no choice or decision on. The best it had was a few points of interactivity. One was like, tell a joke, and if the player laughs, you get a thing. Most of them are just, oh, everyone at the table rolls, whoever rolls, or spins, whoever spins higher gets an extra bit of cash. There's two decisions in the game where you can choose alternate routes, and one is high risk, high reward, and one is just kind of the same. The high risk, high reward, if I found, was so short that all the players in the game had spun over it and just kind of surpassed it entirely, or the choosing your career, which... I mean, they have made some touches in that the new careers, of course, have been updated from the 80s, but also there's less of that, like, the 1980s version, you kind of had to go to college, otherwise you were just going to not have a very good career. And I think it's a little better balanced now, which was interesting and kind of stepped it out of the very dated attitudes of the first game. So as a game, I can't say I, you know, think it's genius design or recommend it. As an experience, as a thing to do, it still is kind of fun. I mean, the entire charm of it was just seeing what what life you're going to roll up, so it being randomly determined is fine. It's mostly just the entertainment you get from having this second little life where you are a doctor and win a goat beauty contest and whatever random other stuff happens to you. It's kind of just the enjoyment of flipping over cards, seeing what absurdity goes on. And having that affect your little peg person. And I mentioned absurdity because just like the old one, the amount of money for anything is just way off. I won a goat contest and got $100,000. I also got charged with a crime and paid 20000 It's just way off. <laughs> whether it's salaries, whether it's events, it's <laughs> heavily skewed. But I found... I would I w wouldn't prefer it as more realistic. I'd enjoy the absurdity that you have to give a birthday present and have to give them fifty thousand dollars, or you throw a birthday for your cat and it costs twenty. Is just fun and just kind of adds to it. So yeah, as an experience, it's still fun and enjoyable. It was a fun little one-time thing, but alas, if you're searching for more of a game, maybe go with Juicy Fruits instead. <laughs> And now we're going to be moving on to the feature game, and this is Under Falling Skies, designed by either Tomas Uller or Tomas Ullier, so sorry about the pronunciation, and published by Czech Games Edition. So I had briefly mentioned this before, but I wanted to feature this one. So what Under Falling Skies is, is aliens are invading Earth and like the old video game Space Invaders, they are descending vertically from the sky in their ships in various lanes. During the course of the game, they start at the end of a very kind of long rectangular board and slowly advance toward your base. If they get to your base, they do damage, and if you take enough damage, you lose the game. But each turn, the mothership advances, and every time you destroy them, they also just spawn back at the mothership. So it's a it's a certain loss. It's an inevitability. It's kind of a time limit. Because as the mothership moves down, it shortens the board and the distance that they have to move to damage you. So it slowly like ramps up in intensity and difficulty. What you're doing to try and stop them is rolling several dice. You roll them and then have to choose on little spaces on your base where to put them. You get to choose the different spaces that you pick, and you can put them at 
either research and advance your research and your little token along the research track, which is how you win the game. You basically out-surpass them in technology to where you can stop their invasion. But you also have to balance this with expanding your base, which expands your options to where you can put dice on the board. You have to balance that with just generating power to do any of these things, and balancing that with actually destroying these invading ships and blowing them out of the skies with your defenses. There's kind of two big twists to this, in that you roll your five dice, sometimes extras depending, and you can place them on your board. But you can only place one die in each lane, so depending on the layout and how much of your base that you've uncovered is what options you have to choose from. Which can be quite tricky if you really need to shoot some aliens out of the sky and also do research on a turn because they might be in the same lane and you kind of have to pick, then you'd have to pick one. So balancing these numbers and where you can put them on your board is the challenge here. But the second twist is when you put down one of these dice, if they're really high, they generally do more for you. You'll advance more on the research track, you'll generate more energy or be able to shoot more aliens out of the sky. But when you place your die in that lane, the number on it is how many spaces the enemy, like invading spaceships, move down towards your base. So you have to not only pick your lanes and balance what you want to do, you also have to balance how far down you can afford to have these aliens move or where you want them to move because shooting them down is not just as easy as rolling the dice. You have to line them up on these certain spaces on the invading kind of track and then shoot them. So balancing a good result with moving them into the right space at the right time is the second half of the game. <laughs> and I guess for a third and final twist, this game is entirely designed as a solo game. It is specifically for one player and only for one player, which is really interesting to see. It's kind of a creative thing. There are a lot of games that have a one player mode or are one or two or are, you know, cooperatives, uh, which just scales between one and whatever. But this is my first encounter with a game that is specifically a solo game. And it's really interesting to have encountered this. And yeah, it's just kind of a I don't know, new idea for me, and not something that I had experienced before. So some things I like. The gameplay is really solid. The balancing where you're going to put things and how much you can afford to advance the aliens is a really kind of tight puzzle. It balances between, at the start, you'll have the smallest base and thus the least options, and as you advance that, you can make things easier for yourself, but you have to sacrifice doing things now for being able to do things later when you advance your base. But also, it also ramps up in difficulty because the aliens start to come faster and faster and faster as the mother ship moves farther down the track and they have to traverse less distance. In the final couple turns of the game, if you roll a six, sometimes that can just mean they're going to go straight from the, well, not exactly, but pretty close to the mothership straight into your base. So it's, it can get quite tight and it's generally satisfying to do. It's a, Nice little puzzle and an enjoyable one to kind of go through, even though it's just you rolling dice by yourself. <laughs> so you can actually get Under Falling Skies as a print and play. If you just have some dice and a piece of paper, you can play it. I don't know if I would ever want to knowing this version exists. First off, it's not terribly expensive. It's pretty cheap for a game. And the production quality here is really good. The art is wonderful. It's a Quan Chai Maria game and looks awesome. It's this balance of like 50, 50s sci-fi as well as 
a little bit more newer and pops of color everywhere. It's quite a nice thing to look at. And the production quality of all the board and pieces is really nice. But also in this version, and part of why I would tell you to do this one, is that it gives you the base mode and you can just play that, but it actually comes with a campaign where you can play through scenarios and defend Earth. It also comes with a little booklet that gives you a few pages of a comic kind of setting the scene for that scenario. And all the art in this is super nice. It's kind of a nice little injection of flavor into a mini campaign for this little solo game, and it found it to be quite an enjoyable experience to play through. With each mission, you know, twisting the game in interesting ways and kind of playing with the system, uh, making things harder or just harder in certain ways, more interesting. It's a really solid addition to this game, and I think without it, it would be a little hard to justify not just doing the free print-and-play game, but with the campaign included and just how well to put together this box is, I think it's an easy, easy purchase, and if you're interested, something that you should check out. And yes, the that mechanic that I discussed before, the now versus later, the putting off the dealing with the ships at, to work on your base, or not throwing actions into improving your base early to kind of invest them even though you're detracting from yourself. It's a really interesting balance in the gameplay of rewards now or rewards later and balancing the two so that it's sustainable over the long run. If you go full way, either way, you will lose and it's an interesting balance to have to strike. Some things I didn't like. Of course, there is some luck. You are dice rolling and it can just work not in your favor and make things a little bit harder than they need to be. The game does have an adjustable difficulty, so if you're really frustrated, you can just tick it down or up if you'd like. But of course, luck is a thing in this, and when it's this tightly balanced puzzle, that can be frustrating. The campaign tweaks with each scenario. It messes with the rules a little bit, but it is very much the same game, and it is to be played over 10 games, so it can get a little, little stale after a bit. It's still a very minor complaint because the art for these and that kind of bit of flavor and the tweaks are generally interesting. So it's yeah, it's the same game ten times, but that's fine. And that's kind of it. There's not really a whole lot of cons to this one. The biggest one I would say, though, is that it is a single-player only game. And single-player board games are a very different experience from any other board games. I myself have kind of, while I have instantly ducked to water taken to board games and playing with other people, the solo aspect I haven't, I've found myself going through phases of enjoying and not enjoying, and to me I think this is one of the stronger experiences for a single player game. Certainly. It's a, it kind of gets over the occasional barrier for me where I just feel like everything I do is pointless. When I'm playing with myself, when I'm playing by myself, um, <laughs> sometimes you can just be playing a game by yourself and just feel like, oh, well, why don't I just like make myself win? Or is it all a little pointless? And this one is pretty quick and short and meaty enough that that never really came up. It is specifically single player. And I, yeah, I just need to mention that that is a very different experience than the games I generally talk about or advocate for on this podcast. But it also has the huge strength of you don't have to <laughs> plan anything. You can just play a game whenever you want to. It's a single-player thing. Treat yourself. Play some Under Falling Skies. And yeah, this is a really solid game. It's a satisfying experience. It's got great components. It's fairly cheap. 
It's a single-player thing, which is very unique, but it executes that well. Overall, this is just a great game, and it is absolutely getting the Meeple in the game stack shelf-worthy award. As things are kind of opening up now, this last year has been <laughs> a tough one to be getting groups and or groups for board games together. And this game is kind of perfect for circumventing that issue. If you find yourself often without people to play board games with, I think this one would be a tremendous addition for you. And it even converted me, who sometimes does not enjoy single-player games, and I quite enjoyed my time with this. So it's an interesting kind of, I don't know, fits perfectly in its own niche within board gaming that I have to recommend it. If you ever just want to play a board game but only have yourself, perfect. This, bust it out, enjoy yourself. <laughs> Shoot some aliens. Yeah, and it, that's such a bizarre thing. I mean, refreshing, but bizarre. And yeah, of course I have to recommend it. So that is Under Falling Skies. It's a very sort of unique property and experience, but one that is quite great and worth your time. So <laughs> if this has interested you, please go check out Under Falling Skies. And that's going to do it for this podcast. As always, big thanks to the artist Grumpy Snorlax for the use of their song Cerulean as our intro and outro music. If you've enjoyed the podcast, if you thought it was good, if this has helped you find some games that you are interested in, please tell a friend. It's the best way to help out the podcast as it is, and I would hugely appreciate it. And if you have any questions, if you want to know anything more about any of the games we've talked about, or you just want to vent an opinion that you have, or something you disagree with that I've said, feel free to email a question to meepleinagamestack at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter. But as always, thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.